If you would, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, I'll get there in just a second. I, I don't know about you, but I love, 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 love hot food. I mean, really hot food. Not, not, not jalapenos, but uh, Sierra, uh, Serena, and, and um, habanero. I mean, I love those. Put them on my eggs, my tacos, uh, my salad, whatever. I just, I just love them. Uh, I also understand this. A couple of things happen when you eat those things. Number one, they make you sweat. Don't they? Well, we're looking at some hot topics, and uh, some of you may sweat through some of these things. I appreciated the feedback I got last week. I think some of you were sweating for me. But uh, these, these topics could make some of us sweat. Uh, I also love it because I know sometimes Trina will go, honey, you're not only sweating, now you're getting red in the face. Uh, these really hot peppers can make you get red in the face. And sometimes when we hear about these topics, because uh, we all come from such diverse backgrounds and we're in so many different places in our journey with Jesus, uh, I, I will not be surprised if some of you get red in the face and mad at me. And uh, uh, that, that's all right. I, I, I understand that. Um, but my purpose in doing this, loved ones, is um, I, I, w- I just want us to make sure that we're thinking biblically with a world biblical view. Because some of these topics, uh, they're not the kind, listen, I'd much rather spend you know, time fun in the Psalms or something like that, but, uh, or get back to the Gospel of Mark. But I just feel like I haven't talked to the, about these things for years and uh, at least a decade, and I just feel like I need to just make sure that uh, I'm helping shape our thinking, because it isn't just about coming and feeling good, but it's about thinking like Jesus would think, and so that's what we're going to do, and I was preaching on, talking about racism last week, and and it hit me that 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 Sunday was also um, Right to Life, Sanctity of Life Sunday nationally, which is basically the anniversary reminder of the Roe versus Wade decision 42 years ago this month. So I'm not coming at this, listen, hear me, I'm not coming at this politically. That's not my goal. It's not what I do. You know me. I believe in politics. We need them. I'm, I'm invested in them. I vote. I'm registered, all of that. And I believe you should be too as a responsible citizen and Christ follower. But this is not a political statement. I'm going to come at this morally and biblically. I want to set the foundation with Jesus as our example. John 1, you hear me say this all the time. Jesus came in grace and truth. And that's the model and the attitude that we have. Unfortunately, too many Christians, they allow these hot topics, these big buttons, to move from a truth to a cause. Do you know the difference? Truth is good. But too many people, they get so invested in it that when something moves from a truth to a cause, it can almost become an uncause because of the lack of love that people deal with. And if you read 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses, it says, though you speak with the tongues of angels and do not have love, though your faith move mountains and you don't have love, 
Though you give to the poor and take care of the poor, but don't have love. Though you martyr yourself, but you don't have love. Uh, He gives five things there. And if you study the the history of the church, and even today, uh, all five of those things are kind of like marks in the church that people get really excited about. And, you know, there's the faith people, and there's the healing people, and there's the, the money people, and the serving people, and the justice people. And if we're not careful, those things can quickly become causes that lack love because we want to be right. And I'm not coming today to do that. I'm coming to challenge your thinking to help you think hopefully through some of these things today and uh, in the next couple of weeks. Because I'll probably be drawing some lines in the sand and some of you won't like it. And that's all right. We can can agree to disagree in some areas. Like one of the brothers come up to me last week and just graciously, lovingly said to me, and I know his heart, he says, Pastor, I just love you so much and don't always agree with what you say, but I like how you say it. And, uh, and I, I know your heart and your conviction. And so uh, if you know me, that's what you'll be wading through in the next couple of weeks along with last week. See, grace allows us to see through the lens of compassion while truth gives us the foundation for our authority. The unchanging and timeless truths of God's word. And so as we approach today in the next couple of weeks, and I, I, we, we cannot, loved ones, neglect the truth. We've got to state and stay consistent to what God's word teaches in some of these issues. But hear me, hear me, hear me, look at me. We will not condemn the hurting. So many people have been hurt by religious attitudes and religious actions because they become a cause for the church. But we understand this and know everyone stands on level ground before the cross of Jesus Christ. And regardless of one's past, present, or their future, Forgiveness is an ever-flowing stream that comes from Christ to those who will, who will acknowledge sin and repent. And we're going to come back to that at the end. And so I, I know I'm a man. I'm speaking on a, what, was, what is predominantly a woman's subject. So I'm just going to ask you to, if I'm your pastor, to suspend judgment until I'm done. And then make your assessments because I, you know, I know you, a lot of, you know, well, you know, you're just a man and you don't understand. And you're right, I probably don't. But I do understand God's heart, I think. And I understand God's word, whether it's male, female, black, white, yellow, whatever. And so just, I'm going to ask that you would at least give me the next 45 minutes and uh, listen, hopefully, with an open heart that I'm not some kind of preacher that's just going to go off on, on you and 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 not bring it back to a place of hopefully healing and everything. I've had the profound roller coaster experience of being with people when they die. Some have died suddenly, others with disease. Some I've literally held in my hands. Some I've tried to resuscitate. And the older I get, the more I face these times of seeing life and death meet this collision course. And the more, more profoundly I am hit having my thinking provoked of the wonder of life and being alive. It's so easy to take for granted the wonder of all of it because, well, we're alive and we've been alive for so long and we never know what the next day is going to bring. You may not be excited about where you are going. You may not be excited about what you are doing. You may not be excited about what, you, how, what you're doing for work. You may not be excited about what you're going to drive after service today when you leave here. But I want to remind you, 
You are alive. You are alive. And it's because of the life and the breath of God in you. Psalm 139, I'm not going to try and do any exposition on it. It's kind of a launching pad, but I think it's so important to hear the words of God. Psalm 139, Lord, David's writing about the all-knowing, the ever-present, the omniscient, the omnipotent God. And he's just raising him up and making him so large as he writes. Lord, you've searched me, you know me. You know when I sit down, when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all of my ways before a word is even on my tongue. I mean, God just, he knows it all. And we just know all about it, don't you, Lord? You've encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I am unable to reach it, understandably so, because he's talking about God. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, uh, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold, hold on to me. He's really just saying wherever you are, wherever I go, God, you're there. I am never, I am never alone. You're there. That's why he's, he's, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. What a, re- what, a, what a wonderful, reassuring thing. Even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Why? Because God, he is light. Now notice this. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together. Some of your translations, you know, they talk about weave together. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. My bones are not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days, listen to this, all my days were written in your book. And they were planned before a single one of them began. God, how difficult your thoughts are for me to comprehend. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. And it makes this, this interesting, interesting transition that just doesn't seem to fit. He says, God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't hate those who hate you. I don't think he was really, I don't think David was really worried about God hating those that that hated him. I think the issue there is we see this transition of this transcendent, powerful, great, grandiose God. And then all of a sudden, David realized that in the midst of all of that, that all of his days are numbered. God knows everything. He realizes there's sin. There's wickedness. There's things that overcome our lives. There's things that become sin that becomes an undertow to our spirit and our soul that we really can't control always what happens around us because of this wickedness. I want us to see the value and the wonder of life because David is really 
just lifting that up there. Creation starts with God. And when God created the father and the mother of the human race, Adam and Eve, this is what he said in Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. One scholar notes that the Hebrew text reads this way. He breathed into them the breath of shame or the breath of lives. It's not simply the creator giving a gift of life for each one to experience, but here, the gift of lives placed in us so that we would be able to procreate and beget life around us, lives through us. God has given us this capacity and this responsibility to take care with it and to treat it and to value it with incredible preciousness or as a precious gift. This life, loved ones, it's, It's in the loins of each man and woman to contribute toward the miracle when our cells become joined together to start another life. And so it's so important that we realize that that the essence of life comes from God. Listen, men can't make it, scientists can't engineer it, and, and nobody can recreate it. God is the author of life. Jesus said in John 10 that the evil one comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I come that you might have life abundantly, have greater life, better life, an abundant life. Not full of things, but full of Jesus. Because he is the life giver. He comes because he wants every one of us loved ones in this room to have it abundantly. Uh, At times I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard, where Christ's followers encourage friends who have experienced a sudden, grieving, sudden death of a loved one, and they might say something like, this isn't God's way. I know this scenario was not plan A. It it isn't what God had in mind when he breathed life into this person. And I think that that's, that's why we see at the end of Psalm 139 that transition. We see that transition where we begin to see the wickedness and the sin of men that sometimes we just can't control it. It can't be controlled. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death because death stands in total opposition to the very nature of God who is the life giver. And see, loved ones, that's why it's so critical to live with the value of life. Starts with God. Doctors pledge to sustain it. Soldiers train to protect it. Ministers preach so that people can be redeemed by the life of Jesus and be purchased back from the depths of, of, of hell and death. And I think, loved ones, we know this. What is true for individuals is also true for societies that we live in. As a society, if it's a society that tolerates and promotes violence and cruelty and genocide, what's it called? It's called uncivilized. That's why a lot of times we're fighting. We send America to fight because of the the indiscretions, the way people are treated, the inequities of how people are treated by their countries. And those that treat their citizenry that way are considered uncivilized, but when people treat their citizenry with dignity and honor and protect and value life, it's called civilized. Today, more than ever, we've had moral and societal advancement in addressing and, and dealing with the issue of child abuse. Public has been served notice, haven't they? That any adult 
who abuses or mistreats a child or a baby will be arrested and prosecuted and most likely serve jail time. Yet in a twist of human logic, if you shift the gear and reverse the birthing process of a newborn and return that child to the birth canal, that infant can be legally terminated inside the womb. It can be a pretty unsafe world out there, uh, but even more so in there. We cry, we scream out in celebration, we give high fives. We dance at this gift of life, don't we? Listen to someone, I read this I think a couple of weeks ago, someone who saw such just deep poverty, broken families, children born into a, just a bad scenario. And based on the logic of just our human thinking, based on that alone, and based on the arguments that are promoted today, for this pro-choice that if anybody would have been able to say because they had a courtside seat to all of this for all the years of her life, Mother Teresa, she was still a proponent of life. And as I said, a couple of weeks ago, it was 1994 in Washington, D.C. She was the featured speaker um, at the prayer breakfast and President Clinton was there and Vice President, I mean President Bill and Hillary were there, and the Gores were there along with, you know, many, many of the top Washington politicians. But with a strong and steady voice, Mother Teresa declared, she'd said some things early on about poverty and how we take care of people and received some very polite and warm applause. Then all of a sudden, she kind of went a little deeper, dug a little further, and she said, I feel the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. It is a direct war against a child, an innocent child. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. By abortion, the mother does not learn to love, but destroys her own child to solve her problems. By abortion, the father is told he doesn't have to be responsible for the child that he helped bring into the world. Crickets. There was no warm applause initially. Everybody's jaw had dropped wide open that with a large group of one of the parties there that stands for this, that she would have the guts at four foot 11 to stand up and speak so powerfully and pointedly. And then over time, there was very strong applause of support. I want to look at a few reasons why I believe we need to reject Abortion is an unacceptable solution to the problem of unwanted pregnancy in our culture today. And the first thing is, is the life ethical reason. When, when do life and rights begin? As I read in Psalm 139, it says, like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. Because God breathed into that womb his powerful expression of life through the coming together of two cells, two people. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God says life starts in his, and, and his works start in the womb. There's scriptural examples that testify to this. We can see how God considers the unborn really a, a, a human person, Luke 1. Um, during the, third, the, third, the second trimester, it says that uh, John the Baptist was literally filled with the spirit of God. 
Scripture there where it says, before I formed you, the word form in the Hebrew is a word that's used to describe the creative work of a potter, a, a tapestry that molds and shapes a vessel. It's the same word that is literally used in Genesis when the Bible says God formed man from the dust of the earth. The same purposeful act of God that took place in the dust when he created Adam and Eve, literally it's the idea that he's doing the same thing in the womb. From a human viewpoint, we may see and hear of unplanned pregnancies, but there's no accidental conceptions. Nobody ultimately is a random, a product of random choice in God's economy. But they are a product of God's creative work because he's the one that breathes the life, that shapes, that weaves, that molds. And we can never forget that, loved ones. That if God isn't involved, and I know we can get into all the philosophical potentially theological, definitely political discussions about what if, what if, and, I, and I'm not trying to, this is such a, compre- just like last week, they're very comprehensive. I want to give you a framework to build on because I can't answer every question today just like I couldn't last week because there are so many things that come out of this. But I'm talking about the general focus and belief on this thing. Because people will say, no child should be brought into this world unwanted. Mother Teresa would beg to differ when she was alive because that's who she took care of. I say the fallacy of that is that maybe the parents don't want the child, but hear me, God does. And there is no unwanted child. God wants that child born. That's why he allows the conception. Years ago, I understand that people could have possibly pled ignorance, and I'm going to come back to this, so just please again, give me the whole time to finish before you start going different places. But years ago, we could understand that you know maybe yeah, life didn't begin because of the debates that were taking place between doctors and counselors, and they're telling people all these different things. But then guess what? As with our culture, the, this whole age of technology has advanced. And now we have these things called ultrasounds and advances in pediology. Listen to this. Dr. Bernard Nathanson was a leading abortion doctor in the U.S. in the 70s. He had campaigned vigorously for the legalization of abortion. He'd performed over 60,000 himself. He believed his intentions were good and that he was doing a righteous thing by providing a service that guaranteed a woman's right to control her body. But something changed in Dr. Nathanson's point of view with this medical breakthrough called the ultrasound that was introduced in 1976. This device literally opened a window on fetal development. The first time Nathanson saw an ultrasound in action, he was with a group of residents gathered around a pregnant woman in a darkened examining room watching a demonstration by a technician. The technician applied a Conductive gel to the woman's abdomen, then began working a handheld sensor over her stomach. As the screen clarified, Nathanson was amazed, seeing a throbbing heart. When the technician focused closely on the uh, image, excuse me, when the technician focused closely on the image, Nathanson could see all four chambers of the heart pumping blood. It was during the scan Nathanson became convicted. He said that. 
his mind had dropped the word fetus in favor of the word baby. Suddenly, everything he had been learning about the child in the womb since his entry into, the medicine, into medicine snapped into focus. He had known what took place in the womb, but somehow seeing it for the first time changed everything. Bernard Nathanson became convinced that human life existed with within the womb from the onset of pregnancy. In an article he wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine, he wrote, in abortion, we're taking the life. The fetus is not mere tissue. It is a human life. World-renowned French geneticist Jerome Leune goes on record saying, to accept the fact that after fertilization has has taken place, a new human life has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. What's he saying? He's saying this, the debate, (coughs) excuse me, he's saying that the debate has diminished or is diminishing in the scientific crowd. We don't debate when a life begins or when someone becomes human. It happens at the point of conception. Yeah, but the debate does still rage today, doesn't it? Even though more and more biochemists, geneticists, and physiologists are in agreement, that human life begins at the moment of conception. This presents the ethical problem of whether to call the termination of a human life inside the womb different than what we would call it outside of the womb. Some of us remember, and all too well, it was 11 years ago, 10 years ago, Scott Peters, Scott and Lacey Peterson, murder. Uh, Newsweek of that year in June of 2004 noted a reference to the Scott Peterson trial. What was he charged with? He was charged with a double homicide. Why? Because he killed his wife and they had an unborn chi- and she had an unborn child within her. Many states now criminalize any harm done to a fetus. Yet, the irony is, or the unusualness is that we still have legalized abortion. Isn't that somewhat incongruent? I read where a doctor some years ago described a dilemma that happened in a hospital in one of our major cities. He said this, it's a problem. One floor of the hospital, we specialize in keeping premature delivered babies alive. Those that we can literally hold in the palm of our hands. Four months along, 16 weeks, 22 weeks. We do wonders with these little babies and we can nurse them back to full health and they end up living full lives but he says you know one four below that we do abortions on babies much further developed much further along than the ones that we're helping to save upstairs it gets a little confusing to our staff and a quote from the same Newsweek magazine that I quoted from They asked this because it became a major issue, obviously, when they charged Scott Peterson with double homicide now. The question is whether the law can protect fetuses without eroding the rights of their mothers, the rights that their mothers have fought for. I don't know about you, but all the rhetoric you hear about mother's rights over her own body sounds a little hollow when a fully alive baby is developing in the womb. To me, I really believe it becomes readily apparent that there are two individual rights that have to be considered. Not just one, two rights. 
So there's the life ethical reason. There's also the soul reason. The second reason is a soul reason why the value of life has to be determined. And what I really mean by the soul issues is I mean that mothers who experience this wind up oftentimes with deep regrets and gaping emotional soul wounds where they can suffer silently for years. Some heal, but many still carry the scars and the personal stigma that no matter how often they hear of the love and forgiveness and the mercy of Jesus Christ and the overflowing stream and the fount of his life to them, it's still there. As a young, as a youth pastor and a pastor now for years, I've talked to women who've confessed to me their deep, deep regrets that it ever happened. And I know some of you could be sitting here today, well, you know, maybe that's just the luck of the draw, PT. You just happened to talk to some women that way. And you're right. I could probably talk to some women at some point who would say, you know, I'm fine with it. It just happened, blah, blah, blah. And that's possible. But I talk to too many. Even when, I, when people know that I've talked about this or going to talk about this in the past, when this subject comes up publicly, I will usually hear from women who have experienced their own personal trauma, and they'll say things like this, please, PT, go easy. Because so many women need healing even years later. And what you're going to talk about will simply open the wound. And that's why I'm really not here to preach. Because this is what I know. And sometimes preachers love this. I could get up here and I could preach my guts out and I could probably get all of you saying amen. And while I'm preaching and you're saying amen, there's going to be men and women sitting there broken. And all I do is exacerbate the pain and the regret that they might have in their life because of soul damage from this. And that's why I refuse to do that. Any sin, loved ones, can do that. Remember David, he, he talked about it after he, the adulterer, he set up Bathsheba's husband to be killed. She becomes pregnant with David's child. And if you listen to the Psalm 32, you'll hear the soul ache that he's going through. He says this, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was sapped. I think it's important to hear this because sometimes we think that this soul damage only happens to women. I have a testimony from a friend who wrote me a letter years ago after I talked about this one Sunday and it's a full page letter, very in depth. But I'll just read the conclusion. This is from a man who was involved in abortion. He said, I am responsible for hurt and sorrow inflicted on someone I loved. It wasn't just the pain of abortion, but the pain of all the struggles of fighting drugs, divorces. They all seem to have extended from that bad choice. But the abortion scar broods atop the older wounds. A demented crowning achievement for my childhood pain, a warped foundation for choices that followed. God gave us a free will, and with it I have broken every commandment. Yet to know I'm forgiven by God's grace, yet at a high cost to Jesus, it's helping to bring healing over the years to myself and my family. That's a man. 
And his whole letter talks about the soul damage that he experienced going through this. And I want you to know, loved ones, there, there can't, there, there, sin always has residual effects. Let's just look quickly at the biblical reason. Push comes to shove. I, I can tell you honestly, there's no Bible verse that says thou shalt not have an aver- abortion, but there are scores of verses to tell us to celebrate, affirm, validate, protect this awesome and wonderful gift of life. Already noted in John 10.10 10, where you see the antithesis, you see the, the work, the enemy of our soul, the devil, who says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus says, I want to come. I want to give you life abundantly. We see Jesus, he comes to give us a quality of life here and now. And then later in John 14, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, not only have I provided you, want to provide you with a quality of life, but I go to prepare a place for you because I want to provide provide a quantity of life. I want to provide eternal life. But if you want a verse, I mean, the sixth commandment is pretty straightforward, thou shalt not kill. Because it says that God, I believe it's Psalm 116, that, that God is the one that, who numbers our days and he's given us appointed time. And when he says that's enough, it's his domain, not ours, it's over. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, see now that I, I myself am him. There is no God besides me. I put to life, or I put to death and I bring to life. See, with God, hear me, there are no accidents. There's no illegitimate children. He's the life giver. He has a plan, and he has a purpose for all. Hear me, as a church, I challenge you to become more informed on this issue. Not to win an argument. Not to put people in their place. Not to shoot people with your Bible doctrine gun. but to be graciously and loving aware so you can give an answer for what you believe beyond the cliches and slogans that the church has only used for too many years to hurt and alienate people. And I say, listen, if you ever know of somebody that's considering this as an option, I, I would say, have them call me. I will talk to them. But I want you to be able to, in the life and love and grace of Christ, able to speak into their lives. I think one of the most profound things that we oftentimes don't think about is Romans where it says that God adopted us into his family. I think about this. I have two sons. Both of them are adopted. And if there wasn't two mothers that said, I will take this child and I will, I won't, I won't terminate it. I will give birth to it, and then I will try and find a home of someone that will love and take care of it. I wouldn't have sons today. I wouldn't have children. There's other people sitting at these tables that have adopted kids that you love dearly, and you would give deeply anything to them. And it's because somebody made an unselfish decision to say, I'm going to go through this pain and this struggle and this difficulty so that I can bless you give you something that you couldn't have potentially on your own. I challenge you to consider action with integrity. We see way too many 
pro-life people in the name of Christ bomb clinics, stand outside and yell at people and calling them expletives and names, all in the name of Christ, with pictures. And, and, and there's absolutely no redemptive value to what they do. And all it does is it alienates those people to the church. And we have to be people that would be like Jesus who go into a situation to try and influence it, but not to bemoan, to berate, and to belittle, and to badger people with the truth. What we need to do if we're going to be involved in this issue is that we would, be, we would, we would, we would come with grace and humility, soft voice, loving hearts, willingness to help, not just tell them where they're wrong. Because that's what happens way, way too often. And that's, loved ones, why the church does not have a voice to those people's lives. I challenge you, stand upright, get involved, but do it reflecting on Christ's love and compassion because every person matters to God. I want you to hear this. I'm going to close with this. There is healing and there is hope. And never, ever forget that. There's probably some here today, you've terminated a pregnancy. The statistics would tell me that there are. It probably happened at a time when you were gripped with fear. You were facing family pressures, parental pressures, schoolmates, being fear of being left alone, potentially being abandoned, the pressure of parent, what are they going to think? Maybe even a church, what would they think if I got pregnant? Maybe it's a boy who pressured you to do it. Maybe girlfriend. There's just a, a whole sundry of reasons why you could have done it that I haven't even mentioned. Let me just tell you a quick story about me personally. It was, I was 18 years old and I was just starting to go to church. I had a close friend. It was a, it was a friend who was a girl, not a girlfriend. And um, got pregnant. And um, it wasn't me. And uh, I had nothing to do with it. But because of the relationship that we had, she'd asked me if I would pick her up from the clinic. And so I'm, like I said, I think I was 18 or 19, out of high school. I picked her up. I didn't really think anything about it. I was just being nice because I cared for this person. And as I reflected on that recently, I, I, you know what? I had no idea what was going on there. I mean, I knew, quote, it was abortion clinic. But I didn't know. I didn't understand what that meant. And, and the reason I tell you that today, friends, is because so many go, went into this situation because of so many different fears, and they just didn't know. They didn't understand They'd heard probably some of the arguments on both sides, and I did even back then, but I didn't, I didn't care, and I didn't know. And I, I, just, I just know that you know, some of us might be hurting, and I want to, it's not here that I'm, I, I can't assuage or alleviate your guilt, but I can sure bring you to the Jesus that understands where you were. Remember David after his moral foul-up, committing adultery with, you know, getting Bathsheba pregnant? Remember what happened? baby comes and it's sickly and after a short time this this baby dies 
And David is heartbroken. And he speaks this powerful word of revelation in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And he says this. um, I shall not go to him, but he, excuse me, he shall not return to me, but I shall go to him. I love that because he said he's dead. He's died. He's not coming back. But guess what? I go to him. What's he talking about? He's talking about there's going to be a day when David dies. He, go, he understood through revelation because it's in the scripture that that baby went to heaven. There would be a time that he would see him. We have to understand this, loved ones. Listen, there's, there's, there's no ghosts. There's no aberrations. It's not like something happened, whether it's an abortion, a stillborn, a young baby, and all of a sudden they're just kind of this wispy little ghost just kind of you know, floating around here or there or somewhere. Every life that has been conceived goes to heaven. I believe, especially, and this is a whole other theological issue about an age of accountability. But these babies, they go to heaven. People ask, will I see this child? Will I know this newborn, this stillborn in heaven? Psalm 139 says this again, all my days are written in your book. The New English Bible says this, Thou didst see my limbs unformed in the womb, and in the book they are all recorded. Day by day they were fashioned. Not one of them was laid in growing. What's this book? I appreciate so much Pastor Jack Hayford's insights that I read on this years ago, and it stuck with me, and I thought it was so powerful and profound. In the last few decades, we've begun to understand more clearly the, our DNA, our genetic code. And he says he wonders if, if, if that book of our being, because in every cell of our life, as we understand now, is really the totality, the book of who we are. That's why DNA is so in, in, incredible. A crime scene, what do they do? They go and get a person's DNA because they can match it because no one's is the same. But within that cell of DNA, everything can be known. Isn't it amazing? That people now are, uh, in crime scenes even use this. It's been that that they can take a DNA and they can, if they have a picture of somebody, they can take this DNA and they can go 30 years. if If something happened 10 years ago, and they can't find a person. They can actually make a mold of what they're going to look like in 20 or 30 years. And there's actually, we've seen it happen where they've seen a face and somebody recognized it because of a mold and they were able to track down the perpetrator. Well, what's my point? Well, here is this. When we go to heaven, God in this book has recorded everything of our life, our genetic code, our soul. And while we may not know what our three-year-old child looked like that passed away, when we get to heaven, there will be some way to know him or her because of the book. Because every life is valuable to God. Whether newborn, stillborn, preborn. And that gives you hope. And you say, oh, I... How could I ever? Heaven is going to be different, loved ones. It says that there's no tears there. There's not going to be a shame factor of, oh, I did this. How could I ever face them? 
I don't know how God does it, but when we get there, there's no joy, there's no tears, there's only joy, there's no darkness, there's only light, there's no hate, there's only love. And hear me, and this isn't a real problem with Creeksiders, but before any of us would ever get overly righteous, remember Creekside. We are all a collection of moral foul-ups. Because it's so easy for us to have these hobby horses that we just get high and mighty on. I could never, I would never, how could? No. We could all sit around a moral poker table someday, and if we're honest, we could lay our cards down and say, I see yours and I raise you one. We'll have cards that are still face down in our life today that nobody knows about, and we thank God for that. And hear me, no one stands out above anyone in Christ's eyes. We are all sinners saved by his grace. I love the story, Jesus in John 8, the woman's caught in adultery and standing face to face with her. And he says, she's naked and probably just got something thrown around her and she's exposed. Jesus looks at her and says, woman, where are they? And you got to understand that word woman, it's not a woman like, hey, woman. It's a woman of, it's an endearing term for that day. It's what Jesus called his mother. And he says to her, has no one condemned you? then neither do I condemn you. But Jesus loved her. But Jesus loved her. And I want you to hear this, dear sisters. If you're today and you've experienced the trauma of this and you've concealed it or you've held it in or you've been embarrassed or ashamed, I don't know what. But if you carry that, hear the words today from my voice, dear woman. Hear those same healing words Jesus spoke to her 2,000 years ago. I'm returning your dignity. I am going to cover your hidden brokenness with my love and this fount of forgiveness that my blood brings to your life. Lift up your head. There's no condemnation. I call you woman. I call you my daughter. I call you woman of God. Walk out today free filled with the blessedness of forgiveness.